Before I get into the word, I want to ask you to just bow your head and pray with me as we begin this time. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that your church is your bride. That you would ask us to stand before you pure and in love with you. Because you are preparing a place for us for all of eternity to dwell in your house. Your holiness will overwhelm us. The sacrifice of your son will fill us and guide us. Your spirit will bring counsel and wisdom and truth and giftedness to us. And in the next few minutes, God, I pray that you would unlock our minds and our hearts to understand more of you this morning so that we can align with your purpose and your ways in order to be a kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So God, I pray for this teaching that it is filled with your spirit, guided by your truth, unveiled to your church so that we can reflect you and be an honoring bride to you. It's through Jesus that we can come to you and that we can gather here this morning. Amen. I wasn't sure that I was teaching you this morning as Pastor Jeff is in town and um, could be here. But there's an exciting message series that's going to be launched here in September. And whatever you have going on, surround your life around Sunday mornings. Because this is, could be one of the most transforming message series that has ever been taught here. Uh, or anywhere for that matter, because it's, it's already practically life transforming in other people's lives. And it's now going to be shared with you this fall. That's, a, that's called a tease. Um, and so consider yourself teased. And you want to be here this fall. That's as much as I'm going to say about it. Except that it's so big that Jeff took this Sunday off to get ahead in preparation for what's coming next. To get ready. And you know that him not standing up here is a big deal. Because he likes to be up here and he does it very well and it's just, it's part of who he is and his DNA. But he understood, I should not be there this Sunday and get ahead because this is that big of a deal. So now you can just turn me out for the rest of the morning because you're like, in September it's going to be amazing. I'll just wait for the amazement and just, you know, take a nap now. Or um, we can engage in what God has given us this morning in anticipation that something huge is about to happen for Grace Chapel this fall. Transforming, reviving, uh, exciting into the kingdom of God. Are you teased enough yet? You'll be here this fall. Good. Excited about that. But this morning... Uh, The challenge was to teach on baptism because there's going to be a baptism celebration held on September 20th partnered with a night of worship. And when I heard that, at first I was excited and then I got nervous because I am a spiritual train wreck as far as upbringing. Example, I was born into, uh, into a believing family. My parents, believers, attended a Methodist church, so I was sprinkled as a baby. By the time I was two, they had transitioned to an independent church of Christ. I don't know independent of what or dependent on who. I don't know. But we moved to an independent church of Christ. And at at six years old, I accepted Christ as my personal savior, made a confession of faith and was baptized into him. So I got a double portion. I was sprinkled as a baby and was baptized in elementary school. And then I began a journey of what I was taught 
was spiritual growth. Grew up in this church of Christ until I graduated high school. It was a very uh, legalist works driven background that I had of how hard you work. I was actually at my home church last weekend and my mom even expressed that. She's like, if you don't have to do it, we don't understand it um, in our church. It's a works driven thing. As long as we're doing the work, then we're saved. And it's this concept that she was doing it tongue in cheek as a, a misinterpretation. But that's where I grew up. And then I went to a restoration movement Bible college built on the movement of B.W. Stone and Thomas Campbell at Cincinnati Bible College, now Cincinnati Christian University where I met my now wife, Sarah, who had a Baptist background um, in elementary school and going into high school and then uh, an evangelical free background in high school. And then she was at the Restoration Movement um, College as well with me. As my daughter would say, we're a hot mess in our house concerning the background of our spiritual walk. And so when a topic like baptism comes in, all of those view baptism differently. Methodist, Church of Christ, Baptist, Cincinnati Christian University all have different beliefs in baptism. And I struggled through what is scriptural about baptism and what is my upbringing that I have allegiance to because it's trained inside of me about baptism. And this morning, I want to ask you the same question. Your lens of baptism, whether you have a spiritual background or no spiritual background, your background is going to be 90% of how you interpret an action called baptism in the Christian faith. Because it might not come through an unbiased lens of what Scripture says. It might come through what Scripture says partnered with what you were taught and what you experienced and piece that all together. My faith hit a transforming point when I started dating my now wife, Sarah, because she had confessed Christ as her Lord and Savior two years before she experienced baptism. In the church of Christ, that's a no-no. You don't do that. In those two years, when I was trained, you go to hell in those two years if you're not baptized. That's the the, the switch that flicked on for me was she confessed Christ and that she was baptized here. And I'm like, so what what would have happened if you would have died in those two years? But, and that was in my mind. But then my follow-up was, what were you doing there in those two years? Well, she was part of a Christian ministry that traveled around speaking the gospel to people and transforming their lives. And hundreds of students came to Christ because of this ministry that my wife was part of for two years. And I'm like, okay, so you have spiritual fruit, which means that you're connected to the vine, is what Jesus says for those two years. How could you be connected to the vine, uh, produce spiritual fruit, have a spiritual gift, and yet you're not saved? My theology was just crushed. Because I'm thinking, how my, my wife has a different experience than what I was trained. So what I had to do was take a step back and say, okay, God, where your scripture speaks is where I want to know you. Not tradition from a church background. Maybe some of you have a Methodist, Catholic background that has a, a sprinkling for infants as de- definition of baptism. The next few minutes, I want to encourage you to step back from religious tradition and let's step into a context of Scripture. And let's consider this discipline called baptism and see what God said of it in Scripture and where its context comes from. Because it can be a transforming aspect of your relationship with Christ. 
Or if misinterpreted, it could be a barrier that keeps you from being able to fully experience God in your life. And this morning we want to address that. As a pastor, I've had so many baptism experiences. It's been interesting. In the Church of Christ, as I said, that you had this thing where if there was two years that went by, you were in trouble. So if someone confessed Christ in that church that I pastored for uh, as a youth pastor for eight years, they confessed Christ and then we walked them straight into the baptistry right then. Because the debated theology would be if they died on the steps, they didn't go to heaven. I actually had a pastor get a phone call from someone on their deathbed who this high schooler had ministered to this woman, his mom, and said, and she had confessed Christ. And he called this preacher of a a Church of Christ church and said, I've got this person, my mom, who has confessed Christ. And she wants to be baptized because I told her about all this because he grew up in a church of Christ. What can I do? Because she can't get off of her bed in the hospital and she's about to pass away. What do I do? And this minister's response, I heard the words. He said, we believe in salvation by immersion only. There's nothing we can do for your mother. Really? The God of grace and Jesus Christ himself would say that? I was listening to this minister and I'm like, who is that? And he's like, it's this student and I don't know what to do. There's no help for her. And I'm like, give me the phone, please. And so I call the kid and I'm like, how do they bathe her? How do, if she wants to be baptized, figure out how the nurses bathe her. And have that be the issue because there's water. That's it right there. It's, if that's going to if that's going to be something that now she's confused as to whether whether or not she's really saved because this minister just really tortured her mentality. Then let's figure that out, because in the New Testament, the term baptism is a transliterated word, not translated. We would have a lot less issues with baptism if we had translated it into English instead of transliterated it. Transliterated it means we didn't find the English connection to it, and so we created its own word. We created the word baptism out of the Greek word baptizo, which in Greek means to dunk or to immerse. In Greek writings, in uh, one particular story, the word baptizo is actually used to describe a ship that was sunken. It said the ship was baptizoed. It was immersed into water. And in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 and 38, it says that, um, that Jesus had gone to the house of a Pharisee. And he got to the house of the Pharisee. And the Pharisee noticed here that the Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Next verse 38 is that the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. The word there, only time in the New Testament is interpreted as wash. Baptizo. Is right there. But the rest of the New Testament, we created this word baptism to be this holy sacrament, where in this moment, the same word that is used. And if we had inserted baptism here, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first baptize before dinner. That would have changed our theology greatly. That the Pharisee was assuming Jesus needed to baptize people before he could eat. But that didn't make any sense. And so these scholars said, we've got to use wash here. But in the rest of the New Testament, let's use the word baptize. Let's use the word that now will set apart instead of setting apart the word that it can be translated to dunk or to immerse or to wash. And this is going to make a whole lot more sense if we put it into the correct context. Imagine for a moment that you grow up in a culture that has one dominating 
religion that seems to have access to the true God. For all of history, people have been in fear of this religion. They've been in either fear of it or they've been in alignment with it. Throughout history, they've either tried to conquer it and divide it because they know when that people group is together, they transform everything. But when they're separated, they seem to be able to be held at bay. But the God of this people has overwhelmed with miracles, has overtaken nations, and has defined his people that they are holy and set apart to him. And that when you get to know someone in this religion, you see that they are honoring, they are respectful, they love their neighbor as themselves. They are obedient to their parents. And you look at it and you say, well, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. That was what should be the Jewish culture at the time when Jesus is beginning his ministry. That the nation of Israel was set apart to God. They had a history that when they were together and when they were in tune with their God, they changed everything. The people were respectful. They had been taught to have this moral code that honored the people around them. They only worshiped their God. And in the Old Testament, there are pictures of people who were not Jewish, Gentiles, those not Jews, that were attracted to this religion and said, you seem to have the one God. I want to, I want to know, can someone who's not Jewish know the God that you know? And your typical Jew might say, I don't know. Let's go to the temple and we'll have a teacher of the law or a priest talk to you and tell you. And when a Gentile would get to the temple courts, a teacher of the law would come out and the, and the Gentile would say, I want to know if I can know your God. Because I believe that that is the one true God. Well, yeah, you can. Let's start with the hard thing first. If you're a guy, you have to... Some of you went to Sunday school. You have to be circumcised. Because Gentiles weren't. Jews were. Step one. Ouch. If you don't know what that is, look it up on your own. I'm not describing it here. Step two. You have to be in obedience to the law of Moses and acknowledge that that is the law. Step three. You throw a huge feast. Okay, the first one sounds painful. The second two, yeah, I'm good. I'm good with that. And the fourth, that a, a lawyer of the word of God, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, would say is, you must be washed. But you wash yourself. You go into a cistern and you dunk yourself in, in a response of saying, I am acknowledging a death to my Gentileness and a birth to being Jewish or a response to a holy set apart person to God. I am removing the old me and accepting the new me. And this is a symbol of that. And so if someone went in public and you saw them in the cistern and they were a Gentile, you could come to the conclusion that they had been circumcised, had come into alignment with the law, had thrown a big feast, and now were not a Gentile anymore. And so you would look at them in the cistern and go, he knows the true God. If you were Jewish, you would look and say, welcome, brother, into the kingdom with us. You're now part of us. And he would be acknowledged, he or she would be acknowledged as part of this kingdom. And this was happening all around. And then, while these moments and parties are happening, all of a sudden, someone starts yelling from the wilderness. Repent and be baptized, for one is coming who is greater than me. 
And people start flocking down to the river and they look and they see this man who's dressed in camel hair, eating locusts and honey. His name is John. And he's standing in the water of the Jordan River saying, if you would repent and be baptized, because someone greater than I is coming, repent and be forgiven of your sins. Start over. And people were walking into the water and he was baptizing them. And for the first time in the history that we know of recorded, we have someone else doing the washing. We have John the Baptist doing the washing. People would come out to him, and we don't know if he just dunked them, if he poured water over top of them, if he said, hold your nose. We don't know. He just was baptizing. He was washing them. It's really John the washer. John the immerser. It's not one up for the Baptist movement on us because they've got someone in Scripture named after them. It's like a battle. They get John the Baptist, so the Christian church movement said, well, we'll be the first church of Christ. That was the name of the church I worked at. I'm like, how can you be the first church of Christ? We are nowhere near where the first church of Christ was established. Um, and you can't be the first church of Christ and only be 75 years old. That is not possible. And, but how can you have this concept of just Baptist? We put that on there. He was known as John the Washer because in the history, he was the first one to say, come, let me wash you in the name of this God who is doing something new. Now, that's happening in Matthew chapter three, if you want biblical reference for that. Then you have Jesus coming in, in Matthew chapter 3, walking down into the water. As John is preaching his guts out and teaching and people are being baptized. What an awesome worship scene. All of a sudden, John looks into the crowd. And maybe imagine you're standing there and you think, is he looking at me? And from behind you, someone just kind of moves through. Oh, it was you. And Jesus walks into the water and walks up to John and says, baptize me. John says, no, cousin, you baptize me. No, John, baptize me. No, you baptize me. No, you baptize me. No, and it goes back and forth. They're cousins. So there's a discussion there as to who should baptize who. Why is there a discussion? Because the understanding of the concept of what baptism is is happening in this moment. If baptism is a washing to illustrate allegiance to something new, then John is saying, I want in what you're doing new. Baptize me. And Jesus is saying, no, in order to fulfill this, I need to be baptized you in order, by you in order to say, I am in alignment and allegiance to the new word that John the washer is teaching. John is teaching that someone more powerful than him is coming and that we should repent and be ready for the one who is coming. And Jesus is stepping into the water saying, I affirm and am in allegiance with what John is teaching. But then Jesus doesn't get out of the water and then say, now everyone else, just keep being baptized by John. He goes down the river. And after he's called his disciples, we have an illustration in John chapter 3. Verse 22, that says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into Judea, into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing and was washing of his own. That Jesus then starts doing his own washing. Saying, come into alignment with me. 
historical context, you have a Jewish religious direction that says, here are the things that you know you're in alignment with this God, Yahweh. And the last one was be washed. One who is Jewish, John, the washer, comes through that teaching and then is standing in water and says, yes, be washed, but be washed to something new, to the alignment that someone is coming who is going to baptize with spirit and with fire. And then Jesus comes and says, yes, I align with John. I fulfilled the old. I align with John that this is new. And now come into alignment with what I teach. And that through this illustration of how it happened, there is a picture that says to us, baptism is a picture of those who are saying, I am casting off what was old and adopting what is new. It is a symbolic action of my alignment with that. It is not a salvation moment. You're not saved at baptism. Because that gets into the discussion of how then are we saved by a work if we have faith in Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, the same context where he's baptizing is post-discussion with Nicodemus where he then goes into John 3.16 and says, Whoever believes in me, believes in me will have eternal life. Belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Lord of your life is all that is needed for salvation. Deep breath. Because that's it. You just have to believe in your heart and your mind that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and accept that as as your Savior and your Lord. Romans chapter 6, Paul is illustrating this. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live in him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he has died, he has died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I don't know how many classes I've been to that take that amazing, beautiful passage about how our Savior went through the beating of all beatings, was lashed 39 times by a cat of nine tails that would have had metal and bone on the end of it, To destroy his flesh that was then crowned with thorns that would begin to bring the blood out of his head down onto his face. Then given a cross to bear on a journey to a hillside. 
that would then be laying on that cross and have seven to nine inch spikes driven into his wrists and into his feet would then be lifted up on that cross to hang in the air to die physically of asphyxiation that he wouldn't be able to hold himself up to catch a breath and if he dropped himself down it would be too agonizing that he would breathe his last that this God who would breathe his last having not sinned once on this entirety of earth and having actually chosen to step out of his um, existence at the right hand of God in heaven where he was reigning as king to be found guilty of our sin by the creator, the one true God that all wrath and sin and judgment would be poured out onto him. And then he would breathe his last, carrying the burden of every thought, action, moment of brokenness, abuse, deceit, damage that any one of us would ever carry. That he would do all of that, be resurrected, breathe new life. Exist in his resurrected body, sitting at the right hand of God, waiting on the moment where he would come again and bring us fully as his bride into the throne room of heaven where we would exist for all of eternity. That all of that, that story of the gospel would be simplified to say, well, you know what? I wonder if you're supposed to be baptized in order to get all that. Because it's said twice in the context of that Romans 6 passage. For if we are baptized, then we know that we're not just baptized in the death, but also the resurrection has been made as a platform to say, well, unless you're baptized, you're not going to heaven. It's not what this statement, this context means. I've been praying over this all week. The context of this is this is the platform for us to live lives with reckless abandon. Know that if you are a believer in Christ and these people would say that the washing that happens here that Paul is illustrating, he's saying if you've been baptized as point of reference, not act action that saves. He's saying if you have aligned yourself with Christ, if you have been publicly aligned with Christ, if everyone knows you're a believer and if you are a believer, why wouldn't everyone know that you're a believer? Why wouldn't you want to be known? Why wouldn't you publicly want to be washed and set apart? Not because the washing saves you, but the washing illustrates who you're in allegiance with. And Paul is saying here to this this group of Romans who are coming to understand the gospel. He's saying, if you have found allegiance with Christ, no, you're not just aligned in his death. You are aligned in his resurrection. So run, run with faith and perseverance and the acknowledgement that you can't die. You will live eternally with Christ in heaven. It's not to say, well, if you haven't been baptized, then maybe you're not saved. It's to say, if you've been in alignment with Christ, you can't die. Christ buried it overwhelmed it, conquered it, 
crushed its head and stands victorious. And Paul saying, remember that. Because for each one of us, dying to Christ might be an easy first step. We might say, oh yeah, I need to die to Christ. But living a resurrected life seems to be the issue. Waking up in the morning and reminding ourselves that sin does not own us. That we were overcoming sin when Christ overcame the cross. That's the battle that Paul is trying to remind us of. What is baptism? Baptism is that public stance to say, I am in allegiance with something new. What is salvation? Salvation is the understanding that you couldn't do it by yourself and that you needed a savior and that Jesus played that role by becoming everything that he wasn't and being absent from his place of where he should be at the right hand of God in order to endure all of the pain and the suffering. And not only did he endure it, he punched it in the face repeatedly. And so we wake up in the morning. And we have the platform to be able to say, I am a believer. I know that Jesus has saved me. So why not be washed? Why not make a public? Baptism should be public. Public can be three, four, five, six people too. Public can be in a pool in your backyard with your life group. Public can be, for me, once public was my brother-in-law in a creek at a youth conference. He was 30-something. Ninety high schoolers are sitting around on a beach and a hill and hanging from trees, literally. They're in trees around this creek. Looking down at this water as he acknowledges his confession of who Jesus is and comes into alignment saying, this is my God and I don't care who knows about it. I actually want people to know about it because I'm about to go live for him. And as he was immersed, all the high school students jumped out of the trees into the water. It was crazy. Just, just overwhelming hugs, love, kisses. Saying, we acknowledge that you are now part of us and that we can't die. So welcome to the family that doesn't believe it can die ever again and has an eternity with Christ. That is baptism. That it is that outward act. And if you have not been baptized, why not? Why not dance a dance of public celebration saying, I am part of the kingdom of God and I want everyone to know about it. In addition to that New Testament teaching, there's also this in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus tells us as believers, therefore go into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. It's a command to people who want commands from God. It's a command to people who have said, I turn my life over to you as Savior and Lord. You say baptized. I don't know that I fully understand what the washing means. You can read through some context in the New Testament. Acts 2.38 is one example. Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
There are other times where there is baptism, where the gift of the Holy Spirit isn't present. But in this one, he says that it is present. Do I understand that it's always present? No. Do I think that sometimes and most of the time the Holy Spirit is present at baptism and overwhelms us as the one being baptized? Yes. Do I fully understand it? Uh Uh-uh. Does that mean I disobey it? No way. Because I wanted a Lord when I wanted a Savior. And he said, be baptized. So it is an act of obedience. It's an act of obedience that becomes an outward expression of your belief system. Of you saying, I align with that and I'm new in that. It's for people. The last thing. It's for people who can make their own decisions. If you've been taught infant baptism, if you were baptized as an infant, I would encourage you, if you don't understand, I can tell you in the New Testament, that's not taught once. Infant baptism is not taught in the New Testament. Even here, we dedicate children. That's for the parents more than it is the kid. I've dedicated, my wife and I dedicated our daughter to God. That's our dedication. We said, we want to dedicate our daughter to your kingdom. And we will, as parents, be the primary disciples of our daughter and invite her into your kingdom. We will give her opportunities to freely choose you because our God is a God of free choice. And that's an act of worship. To be able to have a moment where you choose God and you choose to align. And baptism is a response to those who have freely chosen God. If you grew up somewhere that taught differently, I encourage you to go to them and see biblically where that teaching comes from if you're uneasy about it. If you're not at peace with it, but just know this baptism is for anyone who has made a free will decision to make Jesus their Lord and Savior as an act of obedience to what God asked us to do through the words of Jesus, as well as scripturally to illustrate an alignment with his kingdom. And it's a party. It is a party like no other party. When people are making public confessions that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that they are living resurrected lives, how can it be anything less than a celebration? How can it be anything less than a moment of worship that is overwhelmed by the Spirit of God? The take home for this morning, pray and seek the truth about your relationship with Christ. If you've confessed him as Lord and Savior, why not be washed publicly? If you have been washed publicly, if you've confessed him as your Lord and Savior, remember the words of Paul. You don't just live in the crucifixion. You live in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May our lives this week reflect that. September 20th. A night of worship and baptism. This Wednesday, a time for you to ask questions. A time for you to come to alignment and understanding of Grace Chapel's concept and doctrine on baptism. It's Wednesday night. There's details in your bulletin. There's more details outside on the table. John, Pastor John Leslie will be over, uh, overseeing and teaching that session. If you've not been baptized, why not at least show up to that? One step into an understanding of a unifying bride of Christ that makes a public acknowledgement. I'm with him.
He's my God. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that in this next few days, between now and this night, that we baptize believers and celebrate alignment with you. That you would unveil the depth of your scripture to us. That you would answer questions that we have. That you would overcome traditions that we've struggled with. So that we would be freed to fully experience the relationship that you have called us to. Both privately and publicly. That we would be your bride in our prayer closets. And at our workplaces. God, I pray that we would be in alignment with your scripture and your truth. I pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That will transform us. That will teach us. Judge us. So that we can be a greater reflection of you. It's through that Holy Spirit that we pray this morning and that we specifically ask for your teaching on your word on baptism. It's through him and ultimately through the blood of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of his life that we pray. Amen. Have a great week.